Good afternoon. This is John Ream with the third episode of the Nebraska Complement Podcast, a podcast about workers' compensation and employment law and the interaction between the two. John Ream, I'm a lawyer here in Nebraska who represents injured workers and helps them and helps just everybody, you know, people in general with the people who have disputes with their employers. So anyway, what am I going to talk about for this episode? I was going to talk about air ambulances, and I probably will at some point down the line. But had something happen that I think merits discussion for for this episode. Um, so anyway, last week I published an article or a post on our blog, workerscompensationwatch.com, entitled The Problem with Workers' Compensation Award Ceremonies. And the background of this article is that there's a publication, Workers' Comp Central, which again covers the workers' compensation industry, but I, I think is more targeted towards the insurance side. But Workers' Compensation Central does an award ceremony called Comp comp laud you know and it's an award ceremony there's a gala there's it's a conference uh it's out in california and part of what they do is there's awards for you know heroism for injured workers as well as there's a panel involving injured workers so why do i have a problem with that well i'll explain it more in the uh, more in the episode, but the reason I'm talking about it today is that John Gelman, who I guess would be the godfather of workers' compensation bloggers on the plaintiff side. I mean, he's from the Sopranos country in uh, northern New Jersey. Maybe Tony was his neighbor. I don't know. But anyway, so John Gelman reposted it on his blog, and. I think workers compensation watch or workerscompensation.com which is one of the main blogs news sources for workers compensation picked it up as part of their um part of their blog wire on Monday so as I'm stretching out on Monday morning I had a deposition in Omaha I had to drive to so I'm stretching my back out and I pick up my phone and you get this email from John Gelman saying, "Hey, you got your your blog is on your blog is on um, workerscompensation.com. It's it's national." I'm like, "Okay, that's a nice thing to see." Um, I don't know. Maybe this means instead of maybe ten people reading it, twenty five people read the post. I don't know. But when you write about a narrow niche topic of workers' compensation. You know, if 25 people read your post, that's that's viral content. So, but as an aside, I saw something on Twitter where the most interacted with articles on Twitter, and one of them, number two, was a blog post, jewelclaims.com. So, the mass tort bar, they're geniuses when it comes to marketing, I guess even content marketing, but I'm not expecting any post I ever write to get anywhere near even top of a million on Facebook. But anyway, let me uh, get down here to the 
episode, I'm going to break it out. I'm going to talk about why I think particularly award winners and workers' compensation award ceremonies aren't representative of injured workers as a whole, and then go through some of the reasons why, go through, talk about the politics of workers' compensation reform and where I think injured workers can really fit into that and where they are, how they have fit into that, both in the United States and in Canada as well. So, all right, let me get to the uh, meat of the of the podcast here. So anyway, what's my problem with award ceremonies for injured workers? Let me say out front, my problem is not with the workers who recovered from horrific work injuries. Their, their stories are heroic. They're of great interest, not just to people in the workers' compensation community, but I think to everybody as a whole. It's just tales of heroism. I also think that it's good that the comp laud gala gives injured workers actually a voice to tell their stories. Otherwise, the only other place that they really have to tell their stories is in court. And, you know, for all sorts of reasons, you know, cases get settled. Sometimes workers don't need to go to court, but it's good to hear from injured workers. But looking at the types of injured workers that are honored by the Comp Laud Gala, they're not representative of at least my clients and I think there's a couple of reasons why. One, most people who are honored in that ceremony were catastrophically injured. And by catastrophically injured, I mean people that are amp- have amputations of, of limbs, not just fingers, but whole arms and legs. We also have people that are paraplegic, are paralyzed, are, are stuck in wheelchairs. I mean... When when people get injuries like these, you know, where you're paralyzed or you're losing major limbs, that and death claims, those claims tend not to be disputed by insurance companies or self-insured because usually they happen. I mean, it's a definite injury. It's not something that comes on through overuse is one thing. There's no dispute really as to... The disability, it's not like you know you had a back surgery or a knee surgery. I mean, if you're paralyzed or if you've lost, you know, both your legs, there's no there's there's very little dispute that you're that you're severely injured. But and that makes those claims different than a more routine workers' compensation case where maybe you're dealing with somebody in a packing house, case I had last week, or a case I have all the time where, you know, maybe they tore their rotator cuff and they have carpal tunnel syndrome or they tore their rotator cuff and they have epicondylitis. You know, things that just by looking at them, you wouldn't pick up that they were disabled the same way that somebody who's confined to a wheelchair or who's confined to a wheelchair. Um, Secondly, in cases like that, the insurance company usually pays. You know, their workers' comp 
they they pay those cases. Whereas in the cases that I that I'm involved in, uh, workers' comp is usually stop is usually stopped paying income benefits. You know, oftentimes even medical benefits. So those workers tend to have a more positive experience with workers' compensation. The other difference I see in the award winners from at the workers' compensation gala is a lot of those cases involved third-party negligence, particularly if in cases of amputation or paralysis. Usually in a case like that, oftentimes, more often than in a, a typical garden variety workers' compensation case, you can usually assign fault to a third party, uh, your defective piece of machinery, or maybe there's a vehicle accident and it was caused by somebody else that the worker is not limited to workers' compensation benefits. Again, workers' compensation benefits are limited benefits and the exchange is limited benefits. You don't have to worry about fault. Whereas if you're suing somebody else for negligence who's not your employer as a cause of your injury, you know, theoretically, the sky's the limit on that, you know, assuming that you can prove negligence. And so as a result, somebody with a third-party case can be more fairly compensated for their injury than somebody with just a worker's compensation case. In fact, in a third-party case where there's, you know, maybe an amputation or a catastrophic injury, otherwise catastrophic injury, you know, the only really dispute in workers' comp is how much workers' comp gets paid back out of the uh, gets paid back out of the settlement proceeds. So, uh, but anyway, as a whole, those classes of workers again tend to have better experiences with their injuries. The other thing, particularly with some of the police officers who had severe injuries, is police officers are usually represented by unions and are also public employees. So they're not at-will employees. They're represented by unions. And I think that that's important as well because typical injured worker, you know, somebody who maybe doesn't have a catastrophic injury but has a severe injury, even a back surgery is probably going to require at least six weeks, six months of recuperation. And a lot of my clients... You know, they exhaust their FMLA after after three, and the employers just can't keep them on for the amount of time they need in order to recover and come back to work for their employer. So they get they get let go. That's that's less likely to be the case in a unionized employer you know, particularly a government employer. And again, a lot of these police officers are represented by unions. So again, the experience of a unionized employee or a company or an employee who's represented by a union is atypical for an injured worker. You know, they're less likely to have to worry about, oh, I've been off for 12 weeks. My FMLA is expired. They have less of a concern about that and they have the time they need to heal. Also, because of the union contract, they have more leverage in having their disability accommodated, either through a seniority system or through maybe a negotiated return to work 
uh, which again, they're, they're not out there for non-union employees. So and again, in these, so again, there's a lot of things about those award winners for the, at the Comp Laud Gala that you know they're not really representative of injured workers as a whole. And there's a lot of things going for them both legally and you know within workers' comp, the tort system, and with their employer that give them you know a greater out, much better likelihood of a good outcome for their work injury case, even if that work injury case is disfiguring and otherwise life altering. So anyway, that's the uh, that's the first section of this pod and I'm going to switch gears and talk about the politics of workers comp and the what I think the political role of injured workers is and should be and why things like injured worker awards undercut that political role thanks so for the final for- so for the final part of the pod about why, what my problem is with injured worker award ceremonies, I mean, you going back over the last, you know, over what I've talked about before, my problem boils down to individual worker award ceremonies overemphasize individual resilience and character at the expense of the I hate to sound like a wonk here, but at the expense of the structural and um, systemic factors that make recovery from a work injury, serious work injury, possible and more likely. And I talked in the previous segment about the role of unions, and I'm going to talk more about the role of organized labor on a um, got on a more broad, on a more general scale, you know, rather than on a more particular scale. In this last segment, I'm going to walk back a little bit. I'm 44 years old, born in 1975. About a few years before I was born, there was a national commission on workers' compensation laws. And this was, you know, part of civil rights and labor agitation in the 1960s and 70s, you know, led to the creation of uh, OSHA in the 70s. It led to a, a push, a federal push, to improve state-based workers' compensation laws. And again, the, the the pressure came from the from the grassroots. It came from the civil rights movement. It came from the labor movement. So why you know, but workers' compensation laws have eroded over the last forty years. There is a you know a, a series in ProPublica magazine that angered some members of the workers' compensation establishment talking about. The failures of state-based laws, how they undercompensate laws, how costs get shifted. And it, you know, again, it's, it's a lot of people in the insurance industry and even some plaintiff's lawyers 
didn't like that coverage. But why have workers' compensation laws degraded in the last 40 years? Well, what's gone on in the last 40 years? Uh, one of the, I think one of the big factors behind the decay of workers' compensation laws has been the decay of the role of organized labor. You know, 40 years ago, 45 years ago, you had about 30% of people were, uh, workers were represented by unions. Now you're down to about 10%. Unions fought for workers' compensation laws, and they still do at the state level, but their influence is is less. So we don't have, you know, labor unions, which not only help employ individual employees when they have a work injury, but they influence public policy and the law to give workers, you know, you know, injured workers more legal redress. So you have a decline of organized labor, which is big. And I think that's a accounts for the decay of workers' compensation laws state by state. You also have, you know, again, tort reform, workers' compensation was reforms has been part of those tort reform movements. You know, the the lawsuit crisis, the frivolous lawsuits, hot, you know, hot coffee, uh, you know, the, you know, get, you know, getting millions of dollars for having hot coffee spilled on you, a real turn against the civil litigation system, as well as the, you know, the lawyers like me who practice in that area. So, you know, there are a lot of plaintiff's lawyers who do or who are millionaires and have a lot of money, but those lawyers tend to be mass tort lawyers. They do product liability cases. They do pharmaceutical stuff. They're doing the opioids right now. They do tobacco. They do asbestos. You know, those lawyers, you know, they have the type of money they need to protect their practices at a federal level. Whereas workers' compensation lawyers and employment lawyers tend to be kind of the poor cousins of the trial bar, the plaintiff's bar, and a lot of our efforts are on a statewide basis, and we're kind of left to fend for ourselves with pretty limited resources when it comes to protecting workers' compensation laws in our states. Now, over the last five to ten, you know, five years in particular, there's been some constitutional challenges to workers' compensation reforms that have succeeded. Florida, Oklahoma, there's a lawyer um, down in Oklahoma that's done a lot of good in challenging those those cases. Pennsylvania was one place where, where a, a constitutional challenge works worked. But here's the problem with constitutional challenges. One, they don't always work. And two, in one state where they did work, Pennsylvania, the legislature went in and went in and fixed that the court decision that that the uh, plaintiff's bar used to improve workers' compensation laws in in Pennsylvania. So winning in courts isn't enough, and I've talked about wrote about that on my blog quite a bit. So what do I think? What's really going to improve 
workers' compensation laws. One, the unions have to come back. They have to regain their influence. And things are looking okay. Uh, better now, The uh, there's a successful strike by the UAW. Uh, there's been some teacher strikes in West Virginia, Arizona, Oklahoma. There's one going on in Chicago right now. The uh, flight attendants, you know, some say that the flight attendants, they're they're and that generally the airline unions in general, their slowdown of work led to the uh, resolution of the uh, fiscal, you know, led, led, you know, led, you know, was led to the successful resolution of the um, fiscal cliff in 2019. So there is some labor militancy that is, that it's being successful and that may translate into improvement of workers' compensation laws. But there's also groups of just particularly of just of injured workers who are lobbying in and of themselves outside of trial lawyer groups and outside of organized labor groups. Um, there's one in the United States. There's USMNF, which stands for United Support and Memorial for Workplace Fatalities. There's a woman here in Nebraska, Tanya Ford, who works at another law firm here in Nebraska, who's real active in that organization. Her uncle died at work. Uh, they've started doing some things to support workplace safety and work to lobby for workers' compensation rights. And that's a good group because there's a lot of moral, they have a lot of moral authority, but that's a small group because it's limited to those employees who or families who have lost loved ones at work. And that's, in Nebraska, that's 45 people. And even in, you know, and it's too many, but it's a relatively small amount of people. In Ontario, Canada, there's workers themselves, not just ones that have died at work or had catastrophic injury works, so just had more mundane workers' compensation injuries, have taken to lobbying directly. Uh, there's an injured workers organization up there, and there's also a direct action group called Occupy WISB, which is their province's workers' compensation board in Ontario. And they're taking direct action, and they're protesting. They're taking, they are, they are working uh, to try to change those laws and bring attention to the defects of workers' compensation in the Canadian province of Ontario. So. You have that group, and they're working too. And ultimately, if workers' compensation laws are going to get better, if if we quit, if, if those of us who were advocate for injured workers, we quit playing defense and try to make these laws better. One, you're going to have to have a revival of organized labor, and two, I think injured workers themselves and or their and their families need to be at the table lobbying on their own, separate from the interests of labor unions and in trial lawyers, you know, obviously working together, but I think it's more powerful if the message, if, if, if the lobbying comes from those who have, have suffered through this system and not just, you know, unions who have an interest in this or, or trial lawyers who represent injured workers. And getting back to the award ceremony, the, when you talk about just, focusing on the heroic worker or the you know the worker as an individual you're ignoring the, the you're ignoring the system 
and you're ignoring what could actually improve workers' compensation, in my mind, which is an improvement in laws, and that can only be done through collective action. So anyway, that's my third episode. I appreciate anybody who listens. Feel free to follow me on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm at just John Ream on LinkedIn. I'm at at John, J-O-N-V, Ream, R-E-H-M on Twitter. And those are probably the best ways to get a hold of me. So, all right. Thanks for listening. Thanks. Talk to you next time.